This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Twenty twenty one is drawing to a close, and the world is about to wrap up its first full calendar year dealing with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Our society and its politics have been upended because of this pandemic. For all that we have learned about the coronavirus, we're still grappling with how to contain it. More than seven hundred and ninety thousand Americans have died from COVID, and worldwide the death toll is more than five point two seven million. So with such a -a once-in-a-lifetime event, what are the most significant changes we've seen to public health policy, to the public in general, because of COVID? And are any of these changes going to last past the pandemic? Also, what could our own government have done differently in reacting to the pandemic that would have made things better? I'm going to speak with CQ Roll Call Health Editor Rebecca Adams about these topics at the top of the podcast. And then later on, I'm going to talk to filmmaker Matthew Heineman about his new documentary, The First Wave. Heinemann's films a raw look at the embattled Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens, New York, in the early days of the pandemic. It's a stark reminder of how scary things were, how little we knew at the time, and how far we've come. But first, Rebecca, hey, welcome to Political Theater. For the first time in quite a while. Thanks for having me, Jason. Um, so let's, I, I think that, you know, the when people, when historians are going to look at this pandemic, it's going to be compared to things like, you know, the 1918, you know, influenza epidemic, these sort of cataclysmic um, moments in history. And one of the things that, you know, you have, uh, you've sort of been, uh, you know, covering health for a long time, you you noted that like in in 2006, we, we actually started preparing for such a big thing like this. Let's talk about what happened in 2006 and why that led into it and whether we were prepared for this pandemic and if we were or were not, how it went. <laughs> so, Jason, we we did everything. We did a lot of the things right before the pandemic in planning. We did not do very well with the execution. It, it We saw in 2006 that we had bipartisan legislation to deal with pandemics, to deal with bioterrorism attacks that had stemmed from other legislation that had passed earlier. And um, that legislation was reauthorized in 2019. Almost nobody noticed when it was reauthorized. Um, So we had a lot of the tools in place. We had the creation of this agency called BARDA, which uh, later was used to deal with Pfizer and Moderna and other companies that were creating these new products, these vaccines and the pills. Um, The 2006 legislation also created the Strategic National Stockpile that had everything from, you know, pills, protective equipment, ventilators. But we were very complacent as a nation when all of this hit. And I think maybe part of it was because we felt like we'd seen this movie before and it had never been a big deal in quite a long time. You know, we we had SARS that (laughs) didn't affect Americans that much. Um, we saw the H1N1 uh, influenza uh, pandemic, but that didn't really affect Americans in the same way that this pandemic has. And and so I think that really 
it required everybody to kind of dust off the plans and remember that that we had these tools. We also had the Defense Production Act of 1950 that was invoked eventually, but it took a lot of time to do that. And, you know, it's one thing to have all these plans on paper, and it's another thing to know how to use them, use them effectively, and use them early enough to make a difference. Yeah, and uh, you know it, it is interesting that you know you said like we've we've seen this movie before, and and I I, th- I seem to remember seeing a couple of sort of pandemic type related movies where you know the uh, by you know whether it's outbreak or or things like that that where the you know the CDC and other agencies just sort of they they jump into action and they they just pull the you know kind of plans off the shelf and whatever they can't plan for the, some plucky scientist slash adventurer uh, <laughs> uh, is is able to figure it out. And I mean, I, I feel like the there are there are a couple of positive things that have have come out of it that we're that are normalized. I mean, for one thing, you know, we're you know we're conducting part of this podcast over Zoom, and um, you know, telehealth, you know, was was this sort of pipe dream it seemed for years, and now I mean, it it, it seems to to be that that thing is here to stay. That even once the pandemic is over, for very rudimentary things. Um, or if you're in a, in a remote area, like telehealth is going to be, that's just here to stay. It's because it's cost effective for everybody, right? Well, the jury's a little bit still out on the cost, but I will say I do agree that it's here to stay. Um, Congress lifted some of the restrictions that existed for telehealth reimbursement during the pandemic. I don't see those going away. We already saw with the physician payment rule this year that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has kept in place some of the things for mental health, for telehealth. So, you know, and Congress is continuing to talk about trying to permanently extend the the lifting of the restrictions that it did um, during the pandemic. So I do think that that's here to stay. I think that our work lives are going to be different. Um, I think that technology in general is going to be different. And I think, um, you know, some of the tools that we're using now, like the mRNA vaccines, um, those have, they've been experimenting on mRNA for decades. And, you know, we've had vaccines, you know, since the nineties, but, this is really kind of allowed acceptance of that. And we're going to continue to see those develop. And that makes a big difference in our response from a public health perspective, um, because those are, are very easy to change. And you can, it's almost like cutting and pasting, changing the technology to adapt to a new variant, for example. So those are all positive things. Oh, for, for, for sure. And I, I just, I mean, maybe, you know, that's the, for vaccines, that's just something maybe I didn't pay it that much attention to in the past. Like I just, you know, we, we would get flu shots at work through our insurer and so forth, but it seems like the recognizing the severity of the situation, our government and other governments poured money into the development of the vaccines and then got approval for them through, you know, the clinical trials went very fast. This was not a seven, eight year process. (laughs) This was a seven, eight month process. Um, And hopefully, you know, like some of that can stick around that, that sort of streamlining, not to make anything less safe, but it, but it seems like the, the, the jury so far is that these things are safe and that they, they really did their jobs in making sure that the vaccines were not just effective, but, you know, but did actually were proven to be effective and safe. Well, I would say, you know, we used one of the tools that we kind of alluded to earlier. We used the emergency use authorization for those vaccines, but really the FDA was being very careful with those and they required almost as much 
documentation as they would have for a full approval for those. Um, so, and, and of course, you have to go through multiple layers before you can have those vaccines on the market. It has to go through the FDA outside advisors and the FDA, then the CDC outside advisors and the CDC. So, um, so even before full approval, and of course now we we have full approval for some, um, then we we did see a lot of uh, vetting of those vaccines. Let's let's talk about the the response. I mean, much has been made. I mean, this is a, a year of sort of of change in in administrations. You know, we went from the Trump administration uh, in the middle of this pandemic to the Biden administration. Uh, the the former president made uh, more news uh, recently when uh, the, the there was some reporting that he had tested positive for the coronavirus before the first uh, presidential debate and went on stage anyway. Um, you know the the current president Joe Biden you know makes a point of having a mask on and and you know kind of doing all of the what some people call hygiene theater what other people just call being careful <laughs> uh, and and so is. Is there a was there a huge difference, or does it make a difference in the way just like the the top of the ticket, if you will, responds to this? Is it, what what have been the the biggest differences that you that you've observed, Rebecca? It does make a big difference, and to be honest, it's kind of heartbreaking to see the partisan divide. So I do want to give credit to the Trump administration for the vaccine development. They they did push ahead with um, Operation Warp Speed to get those vaccines developed very quick, quickly and authorized. Um, and I, I think a simple thing like a picture of President Trump getting the vaccine that he helped develop could have made a big difference. And I think that it was surprising to me that some things like wearing a mask and, um, you know, and getting the vaccine turned out to be partisan. Um, we still see that uh, the the biggest, you know, the Kaiser Family Foundation does some polling on this and the biggest predictors for unvaccinated people would be, you know, first uh, people without insurance who are who are concerned about the cost. But then Republicans and white Christian evangelicals, those are the factors that that are identifying for people who have not gotten vaccinated. And you see the death toll much higher in counties that were won by Trump versus those that were won by Biden. The New York Times has documented this and has some great charts showing the divide. And it is stark. It is, and it doesn't even matter, even in states that are blue or red, you can even look at counties within those states and see that counties that went 70% or more for Trump have a much higher death toll from this virus. So it's it's it was quite a difference. And you know, President Trump, even though he he did push along the vaccines and the therapies, not wearing a mask and holding these risky public events that he did, holding rallies in indoor spaces without masks, that was just hurting his, you know, our fellow citizens and his own supporters. And I mean, we're, we are, I feel like we're entering a new phase with, with, you know, some, some of this, I mean, like maybe there is a, uh, you know, it's sort of a normalization. We've seen some evidence that people are getting more boosters because of the Omicron variant. We'll see, you know, I think we've got a long kind of way to go, 
Um, but one other thing I, I wanted to to touch, you know, base and get get your temperature on, so to speak, like using medical terms, right? <laughs> um, is uh, you know, the, it it wasn't just also the execution at, at the White House level, but the agencies played a part in this. And even though you know, in in some of these movies that you know, like uh, that are out there about outbreaks, like the people with the CDC and so forth, are heroes. Um, they didn't quite do the best job that they probably could have either in either administration. We've seen mixed signals even, up, you know, about like who should get a booster or not. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. The first thing that pops into my head when you mentioned that was the testing early on where the CDC insisted on doing its own test and there were problems with that. And that was exacerbated by supply problems where we didn't have enough testing supplies. And and the messaging was inconsistent. Part of this is the challenge of communicating science during a pandemic because things evolve, right? But I think that we saw things like, you know, the CDC saying, you don't need to wear a mask, then you do need to wear a mask, then you need to double mask, then suddenly you don't have to mask again if you're vaccinated. You know, I think um, particularly on that last point, people feel like in the Biden administration that the CDC may have jumped the gun in telling people that wearing a mask inside is is not important. So I I think that all of those things were challenges. Um, I think that there's plenty of of credit and blame to go around. Um, I think that things could have gone better with better leadership at the top, but also there were some challenges that can't only be blamed on on leadership. Well, uh, again, we're we're about to enter a uh, a, a third year now, a uh, third different calendar year of of the pandemic. Um, you know, we we're still dealing with the Omicron variant. You know, your own team is covering you know where it's going from there, uh, how. Uh, you know, how volatile it is, how quickly it spreads and so forth. So there are a long ways to go. Congress is also getting involved uh, with different uh, uh, congressional review acts on on whether or not we'll have a, a vaccine mandate. The White House has said it would veto anything like that that came its way. But still, um, we have a long way to go. But I think it, this is helpful, you know, I think to just sort of take stock of where we're at right now. And because it's the end of the year, it's a great time to take stock. <laughs> so... <laughs> It is uh, one, I, one one thing I would like to mention is that you know there is we're we're still the science is evolving and we don't know exactly what we're going to find out in the next week or two on Omicron but early indications are that that third shot is important or additional shots um, if you got the Johnson and Johnson so um, I think that what we're hearing scientists and public health officials say is go out and get that booster and the CDC is now telling people. If you want to have a family gathering or a holiday party, you need to make sure everybody's been rapid tested or or tested in some way before doing that. And I can say it is it is not super pleasant, but it is easy. I took one this morning uh, before coming into work uh, just to make sure because I had a little frog in my throat, and I thought, all right, I'm just going to use the little Abbott swab. And uh, it's uh, it, it like I said, it's. It, 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 early in the morning, uh, it, it does tickle a little bit, <laughs> but it is, we are light years from where we were uh, with, with you know, the availability of those tests uh, and so forth. So it's, uh, I, th- I think what you're saying is that, that there is a lot of, we can do in terms of personal responsibility to help uh, deal with the the pandemic in our own, whether it's wearing a mask, getting a booster and, and self-testing before going into these kind of gatherings. Absolutely. Yes. 
Well, thanks, Rebecca. I really appreciate uh, you you talking through this. We could uh, we could talk a lot uh, about it. We'll 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 have more opportunities to talk about the pandemic. But uh, I really appreciate uh, this this sort of uh, download. Unfortunately, I think we will have more opportunities to talk about the pandemic. But please have me on another time. For sure. And now to my conversation with Matthew Heineman about the first wave, his documentary about the early days of the pandemic. Matt, you've done a lot of, of reporting and, and filmmaking in some really dangerous parts of the world, you know, in Syria and Mexico. Uh, and this is such a, a, a totally singular experience, though, in the first wave. Um, you know, and you capture that very well with the healthcare workers, you know, that they don't know exactly what, how to keep each other safe as they're addressing this pandemic. What was going through your mind? Because, I mean, you're right there in it with, with all of them. I mean, it's very up close and personal. Uh, talk about what you and what was going through the minds of you and your crew as you're, as you're trying to stay safe and also, you know, put together this, you know, kind of important historical document. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely the hardest film I've ever made by far. Um, <clears throat> and in some ways, the most terrifying. You know, when you're making a film in Mexico or Syria or Afghanistan, where I was this summer, um, you can sort of come home, in my case, to New York City and somewhat detach, um, although these stories really never leave you. Um, but in making the first wave, you know, we were living the same thing we were documenting. It was a 24-7 experience for a very, very long period of time. And so you could never really shut off. And and obviously, especially in those early weeks and early days, we knew so little about the disease, how it was transmitted, um, how to protect ourselves. You know, there's obviously the flip-flopping of whether masks are valuable or not valuable. You know, there's, there's such little information in science behind how this was transmitted. And so we really sort of were, were, were doing the best we can to follow the science at the time, but in some ways sort of, you know, making it up as we went. Um, but but our, our general rule of thumb was just following, you know, what the doctors and nurses that we were filming were doing. So given the limited amount of PPE that was available, we were given one N95 mask for two weeks that we had to keep reusing. Um, you know, we wore scrubs. We did, we did the best we could um, because the last thing in the world we wanted to do was either transmit the disease amongst our team or, you know, to amongst the, the participants that we were filming with. You know, it, I think it's important to note that it's it's hard, you know, it, it, it's hard to, I think everybody's sort of, you know, kind of over COVID, right? But like, as you said, this, the kind of stories that you follow um, from the healthcare workers to some of the people who recovered uh, to some who didn't make it. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's a heavy, it's a heavy story, but there's also a lot of uh, hope in it too. I mean, like in particular, when, when the way that you follow um, uh, Ahmed Ellis, uh, you know, for months, who was in, you know, uh, in and out of intubation in the ICU and so forth, uh, and then Brussels, uh, Jabon, is that, is that how you say her name? Uh, Jabon. Jabon, uh, you know, who was a nurse who had just given birth also, and whose husband was a nurse was a nurse also. Um, you know, this is, it, it shows a resilience, I think, that is an, a, an also like a very 
um, necessary part of the story. Not to make us feel better about it necessarily, but because it's just actually there. We did, there are survivors. We did, you know, amid all this carnage, you know, people did make it and we're, we're starting to, you know, kind of gain on the virus, even with some of the BS that's going on with misinformation and so forth. A hundred percent. I mean, look, yes, it was terrifying. Yes, it was scary. Yes, we saw many, many, many horribly sad things every single day. But I think the overwhelming feeling amongst me and, you know, the incredible crew that worked on this film was, you know, inspiration. That every day we were deeply inspired by the resiliency, the courage, the fortitude, the humanity, the love. Um, that we witnessed and you know I, I didn't yeah I didn't go to bed at night sort of feeling depressed about the state of the world although the state of the world was quite <laughs> sad um, I, I felt very fortunate that I was able to witness these incredible acts of humanity every single day and and I you know I think the film is about many 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 different things but if I was just sort of like boil it down to one thing, it would be how human beings come together in the face of crisis. Another aspect of this too was that as, as this first wave was starting, as, as you know, we were starting to get it under control, um, George Floyd was murdered uh, in late May, you know, and, and, the, and the protests started, particularly in New York, uh, they were big, and you were right there too. And I remember, you know, being in Washington, we had a very, you know, a, a pretty robust um, response. I mean, protests uh, to, to Floyd's murder. And in New York, it was just amplified. Um, is, was that just, you know, could you, what was going through your mind where you're just like, really? I mean, like, this is like this weird convergence of racial justice and healthcare, you know, inequities. I mean, it was just, if it wasn't overwhelming before, it was about to be. And then one of your, one of the uh, people you follow, Dr. Duget, uh, takes part in it. And, and just the, the footage that you get of her uh, at the protest is just absolutely, you know, incredible. I mean, I, I don't know how you got in contact with her, but like, <laughs> I mean, what a, what a subject she is. Yeah, she's amazing. And, uh, you know, I met her very early on, I think in the first couple of days. Um, she had this spirit, this energy that that was undeniable. And, and I think it's hard to articulate emotion. It's hard to articulate fear. It's hard to um, maintain that spirit when you're when you're surrounded by such an unknown invader, and and when you're surrounded by such death. But I think it was so clear right away that she could convey with such pathos the 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 feelings of the time, and and she was very open, obviously, to being filmed as well. So I, I feel. Enormous amount of gratitude to Dr. Duget for opening her life to us at such a difficult time. Um, per the earlier part of your question, you didn't need to be a scientist or an epidemiologist or a researcher. You just needed to walk around the ICU for a couple of weeks and realize that this disease was disproportionately impacting people of color, um, especially in New York as well. And, and so it was never a question of sort of um, if we were going to include that in the film and sort of how. And it all just came out very naturally in following Dr. Duget, who's a first-generation American uh, from Haiti. And 
And then obviously when, when George Floyd was killed and these streets that are surrounding me now, which were at that point completely empty, were suddenly filled with, with people protesting against uh, you know, systemic racism. And, and we had this national reckoning over, over that in our country, which obviously is also intricately tied to this dis- disproportionate impact um, of this disease. It all just happened naturally in following her, um, her story. And that's what I love about filmmaking is, is it's not me telling this story, it's them. You know, it's, it's following your subjects. And in this case, um, this, is, this is where the story led us. Uh, you know, one, one thing I also, I, I, I neglected to mention, I, I wanted to mention earlier was you've got these great, you know, shots of, of Andrew Cuomo um, when he was the governor and, you know, he's left office, you know, under, not, not because of COVID, but because of allegations made against him, you know, for harassment. But it's, it's worth remembering, I think, for people that, you know, here was this flawed person as we're all flawed and he provided some real leadership at a time that was was among you know the most challenging times we've ever had, and I, I you know what was was it was it weird working with that material and knowing that like I, I don't I'm not sure when the post production was when when he you know left office and so forth but was that was that kind of a, a weird feeling to think like you know I mean no this was this guy was kind of a no BS you know we're gonna get through this you know being a leader and then bounced from bounced from office you know, for, for something, you know, later, it's a kind of a complicated, uh, <laughs> complicated figure to, for, to be in the, the movie. I, I try as much as possible not to make my films political. You know, our, our world is, is polarized enough, is, is politicized enough. And, and certainly this issue has been such, um, you know, I really hope that my films can help bring different sides of this, of this, of our world together to, to debate, to argue, to think, to contemplate, there's no Fauci in this film. There's no Trump in this film. That, that, that wasn't just sort of a, an accident. Um, that was a very distinct choice. The reason Andrew Cuomo is in the film is because whether we like him or not, you know, it's not, he's not included to, to sort of analyze his character or his performance. You know, he, whether we like it or not, he provided this sort of narration of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially in New Yorkers, but I think a lot of people in the country and in fact the world tuned into his press conferences um, as a sort of daily metronome of what was happening. And so that's the way in which, you know, we decided to use him in this film was to help sort of provide that, that sort of information as, as he, as he did at that time when we had such little information. And frankly, we had such, you know, little information coming from our national government from, from elsewhere he provided that. And so that's why he's, he's in the film the way he is. Yeah. And I, I do, I just, I do want to, you know, just second that, that this, this doesn't feel political at all. This is really about like people uh, and, and what happened. And I just, I can't think of a, a, a better, you know, window into that time than this. Um, I mean, you know, I was covering, covering all this, you know, as, as a journalist and I, I just feel like my eyes have been really opened and, um, you know, just kudos on a, on, on something, you know, like as, as big as, as, as this and, um, good luck with it, you know? Oh, well, I, I really appreciate it. I always, I love chatting with you and yeah, I think, I think this, this film, as I think I said, this film is the film that I care about the most that I've ever made. And I think probably 
will ever make. Um, and I, I'm nervous that people are scared of it. I'm nervous that people are afraid to engage with it. I think we as Americans have this tendency to want to move on and not look back. And so I hope that people are, are able to engage with it and that we can lower the barrier to entry mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of love in the film. Um, there's some hard moments for sure, but, but it's filled with a lot of other emotions too. Yeah, no, I, I, I want to back that up. That is really, um, it, it, it's, it's all there. It is, it is heavy, but it is, I mean, you, you do also see, you know, people come out on the other side and, you know, the, again, the, uh, the, particularly the two people who get out of intubation. I mean, it's just a, it's a really, you know, kind of miraculous set of scenes there. So, um, Matt, I, I really appreciate, uh, you, you talking, uh, I mean, and good luck with the film. I mean, I, uh, I do think that this is, this is one of those movies that people are going to watch for a long time to understand what, what it was like. So congratulations on it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. All right. The first wave was released in theaters in November, and it is now available to watch on Hulu, uh, hulu.com and the Hulu app. And it is, has actually been submitted to the Academy Awards and the documentary feature uh, selections. Mm-hmm.